Hello and welcome to the Off Court Podcast. It is a podcast about the history and political economy of sports. You probably already know that by now because this is our last episode. My name is Aton. I'm here with my co-host. Hi, I'm Abdul. And we are continuing our conversation from last week about Israel. This is the third episode technically about Israel. We're doing this season, as uh, you heard Abdul say in the last episode, it is all stemming from his latent anti-Semitism, which I have excused and given him the pass to completely explore on this <laughs> podcast by reviewing history quite uh, in-depthly about the subject to... Uh, yeah, I'm uh, I'm looking for an anti-Semitism hood pass uh, desperately <laughs> uh, so I can fulfill my own, uh, you know, Hezbollah mandate <laughs> as a sleeper agent in Canada. As we also said in the last episode, this was sort of... And it, it still is Munich. What happened in the Munich Olympics between the Palestinian quote-unquote terrorists that showed up and the Israeli uh, athletes, which has been well-documented. Um, you can also watch the uh, Sp- Steven Spielberg movie about the subject. Uh, it's uh, a surprisingly neutral movie, actually, which pissed off a lot of people. I don't know if you feel the same way, but I, I think it's uh, a responsible enough telling of like exactly what happened during that time. And uh, as we talked about in the last episode, we we sort of talked about pre-Maccabea games and sort of what was going on at the same time uh, in terms of the YMCA's presence in Israel. But what uh, Yosef Yucatielli, who we discussed uh, thoroughly in the last episode, was doing is quite important for um, sort of pre-Munich uh, Israeli presence and Palestinian presence in the Olympic, in Olympic and international games throughout the world, as well as what happens after Munich in this very uh, depressing way. Um, the last episode was pretty funny. I can't promise that for this one. Uh, things might get just a no little bit No dead depressing. puppies as like omens? No dead puppies. There is a lot of passive-aggressive actions between the both sides, which is pretty funny. Like Maybe we can find some humor in this continue- continuing cycle of uh, discord between Israelis and Palestinians and how stupid it seems that we might find humor in that. But and, it's just—it's um, going to take some digging. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, and I was just like, in regards to Munich, I think it's like super important to consider. Like, I my own politics are like I am a pacifist at heart against all uh, against all other inclinations. But like, you can't understand like Munich was obviously a tragedy, but you can't understand Munich without understanding like the history of settler colonialism in Israel, the outcomes of that settler colonialism the complete lack of movement by like the Israeli government on like giving Palestinians rights and not like taking away their land. And especially, you know, like everyone has this thing where it's like, Oh, they're firing rockets into Haifa or whatever. And it's like, yeah, they're bulldozing homes, right? Like this is not, this is not like a one-sided equation. One is arguably the best equipped military in the world. Yeah. The other are dudes with homemade rockets and oil. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, Spielberg's Munich is a pretty great uh, extension of that fallacy in terms of how we view Munich. And I think it does it actually in a very brilliant way, if anybody who hasn't seen it decides to. And that it does open the film with a very Hollywood interpretation and a visualization of exactly what happened in Munich in terms of the, the death of these 
uh, Israeli athletes at the hands of these uh, either you can call them Palestinian terrorists or you can call them Palestinian heroes, depending on which side. And the film very much explores this idea that Israel, while it's having these internal political issues and, uh, and uh, you know, Arabic people are rioting once again, they are spending as much resources as possible on what was called Operation Wrath of God to find these terrorists. And in the act of finding these terrorists, many of the uh, Mossad agents that had to enact these killings are also realizing basically what we understand, which is, wow, this government is spending a lot of resources on revenge when it has a lot of fucking problems in its own country that have to do with this. Um, it's just the the sort of like perpetual tragedy of of the two-state solution ideal and how it's just like, it seems to be impossible. And as we're going to see, sports were used to perpetuate this 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 tragedy. I'm also going to recommend the documentary, The Gatekeepers, about Israeli intelligence and uh, especially people who have left Israeli intelligence. I'm trying to remember The Gatekeepers. That wasn't Mossad. That was... Um, that was another that Shin was another Bet, agency. Was yes. Yes. Uh, yeah, cuz people forget that Israel has like a million intelligence agencies, right? Like mm-hmm. they it's not just Mossad. Yeah, it's it's six former heads of the Israeli secret service uh, the Shin Bet discussing their organization's failures since the 6-day war and successes. But like I think a lot of it and like I I'm not excusing these people, by the way. They're not they're not great people. Um it is a very complicated look like israeli politics and israeli the israeli security apparatus and like it's it's arguably it's history of failure in terms of securing even securing Mm -hmm. the safety of of israel as like uh you know uh, in what they deem as like a legitimate country right like and i think that that is also very good documentary i haven't seen munich in so long but now i want to rewatch i might do that tonight actually yeah i I would recommend it i mean uh, spielberg had to make it in secret because of the of his fear that its political uh, ambiguity and neutral uh, position on the on this incident would create backlash, and it, it did, except for that it was panned critically. So uh, not it didn't he didn't have to worry about it too much. But it's also a great movie, from what I remember. It's one yeah, of it best. is a great movie. You get to see fucking Eric Bana do the Israeli accent for three hours. Is it, it is good? very it is it is basically what I'm doing right now. He sounds like an Israeli. He's not bad. He's pretty good. Have some have some shikshuka, please. Um, <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. So Israel becomes an international center for Jewish sport around the world, like basically since the inception of the 1932 Maccabea Games, which we mentioned in the last episode as Yekutieli's uh, project for uh, creating uh, sports-related nationalism in uh, in mandatory Palestine. Um, so the Maccabee Games are an Olympic-style event for Jewish athletes, which is held in the country. Uh, we will discuss it further in a bit. But despite Israel's location in West Asia, um, the Israeli sports associations in various sports have actually mostly belonged to European associations due to the refusal of many Arab-Asian countries to compete with Israeli as- a- athletes since the inception of Israel. Um, we're going to discuss that, too. In the tale the, as old as time. It, literally, yeah. And how it never stopped post-Munich, um, and not, which you would think maybe would shake up this relationship and maybe there would be some peace after that. But no, it just made everything worse. So as we mentioned in the last episode, in 1933, the Palestinian National Olympic Committee was officially formed and was recognized by the IOC in May 1934, despite never actually competing. Although this committee represented Jews, Christians, and Muslims living in mandatory Palestine, its rules stated that they, quote, represented the Jewish national home. 
So very important here to read the fucking fine print in these like unifying of force, this unifying force in Israel, which is their Olympic Committee. Um, the organization was controlled exclusively by the Maccabee Sports Organization uh, and oversaw only clubs affiliated with Maccabee, uh, the Maccabee organization, while neither rival Jewish sports organizations like Hapoel nor non-Jewish sports organizations like the YMCA took part. <laughs> Um, so I want to read this section. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Abdul. Were I was going to say the YMCA, like, again, the, the kicked puppy of, of Israeli sports. Yeah, there's a reason why I learned about the Maccabea games and know a lot of this and not really about the YMCA's efforts, as we will see, with why the Maccabea games were so important for his early Israel. Um, so this is uh, some sections from the book Sports, Politics, and Society in the Land of Israel, which nicely summarize how sport was utilized in the early days of colonization in Israel. As many people forget, before the country was officially formed, it was under British rule. Um, we'll see here some similar patterns to those that we discussed also in the hop hockey episode as to how sports is used to control like the new American population and the indigenous people that are being colonized, or the Arabic people in this case. So, a bit of reading. Dominant aspect of the activity of Jewish sports movement in the land of Israel in the years of the British mandate was instrumental attitude towards physical activity, viewing it as a means of achieving various aims, both sectarian and national. This trend was a continuation of the tradition that had begun under Ottoman rule at a time when activists of the sports movements voluntarily fulfilled security missions concerned with the defense of the Jewish of the Jewish public against Arab rioters and took action to encourage Hebrew work to propagate the Hebrew language as a nationalist vehicle and advance the national cultural revival in Israel. So we're, we're going back here a bit to what Abdul was talking about, but from the early 1920s, members of the sports organizations participated in activities that were specifically aimed at restraining Arab manifestations of violence. They also assisted with the absorption of immigrants and in broadening the settlement enterprise. We're going to talk about that a little bit more um, because there was British policies that were quite strict about immigrating into Israel at this time. It's uh, worth many, uh, recognizing, yeah. by the way, that like the history of immigration, Jewish immigration to Israel, which, you know, as you mentioned before, started way before uh, the liberation of the camps uh, and the end of World War II. Um, was basically because no other country wanted to take Jews. We we are all suffering from a Mandela effect where, like, we took the Jews right out of the concentration camps and we put them in Israel. <laughs> Patently untrue. Patently untrue. Um, so many of the activists that I mentioned, they volunteered in Israel or in Mandatory Palestine, volunteered to serve, actually, in the British Army during the Second World War. And some were active in saving and rehabilitating Jewish Holocaust refugees from Europe. Uh, which explains what we just mentioned. Physical education and sport were actually seen as a means of promoting these national aspirations, both by the sports movements and by the heads of department of uh, and by the heads of the Department of Physical Training in the General Council, which was called at the time Vadleumi, which was this was established in 1939, by the way, and was sought to coordinate under its authority all tasks associated with furthering physical uh, uh, sp uh, physical and sports education in yeshuvs in Israel. This is where. Yekutieli comes in. Another aspect which stands out in the chronicles of Zionist sport in the pre-independence years is a development into a means of national representation. The aspiration to break through to the surrounding geography, geographic area from within the framework of mandatory Palestine while continuously striving to strengthen the position of the Jewish national home in the international arena. So there's even this mandate within the Maccabean Games to mend peace within the region before it was like, 
but also like we need to fucking like make sure that Palestinians aren't a part of this. This was done basically to uh, intensify an attachment to Jewish communities also in the diaspora, uh, increasing awareness of leaders in the sports organization of and and of the political advantages concealed in the use of representative sports within the the Middle Eastern region. Um, but in December 1926, Yosef Kutieli, a prominent member member of the Maccabeah. Noted this, at many opportunities, experts have noted the great propagandist value of Hebrew sport for our national movement. The propaganda will be different and the results will be different with the appearance of an Eretz Israeli team, Eretz meaning country of Israel, uh, speaking live Hebrew, called by Hebrew names and sunburned by the son of the Eretz Israel. Such a team with a blue-white flag at its head will have no foreign partners. It will be ours in its victories, and propaganda will be ours. I love this old quote because early Zionist propaganda is very Nazi-like, and it's happening at the same time that Nazi propaganda is being populated in Germany. I wonder if they took any inspiration. What do you think? Like, I think it's like a counterpoint to, to Nazi propaganda to say, like, we can have a strong, uh, assertive nation-state just like the Germans have, right? Like, the fact that, uh, you know, we talked about this last episode, the flag that was carried at the first Western Asiatic games would eventually, but where like, again, like it's widely considered like Israel became a nation at those games, even before world war two, like it, it announced his presence on the world stage of those games. Like, and that flag became the flag of Israel, right. With all the connotations, by the way, that flag holds like that is a loaded symbol. It's uh, it's very important to note that the flag becomes such an important vehicle for this in the thirties, because in the twenties, I don't know if you know this, Abdul, from your research, but like the Maccabee games were actually had a very similar intention to the YMCA in terms of unifying the region, as I just mentioned. Yeah, that was a Frederick the, Kish thing. That was his, exactly. uh, his plan. Yeah. Yeah. From the end of the 1920s, there was, this is back to the book, there was an increase in sports meetings with representatives of neighboring Arab states. This included Egypt, Syria, and Lebanon. These countries provided the sportsmen of the Yeshuv with convenient arena for appearances due to their geographic proximity, speedy and cheap transport links, and the warm and friendly relations that their inhabitants showed to the representatives of the land of Israel at the time. A Jewish team from the land of Israel even participated in the sports game of West Asian countries, as we mentioned in the last episode, which took place in India in February, March 1934. Um, Yeah, like this actually shows how Israel maybe could have had a different colonial mark if it had just kept relations within the majority of its neighboring countries somehow civil. But I digress to the (laughs) propaganda that they wanted to create. the anatomy and sports activities which prevailed in the issue was only occasionally disturbed by the mandate authorities, so the British mandate authorities. It was the direct meeting between Jewish and British sportsmen that had the potential to arouse tensions between rulers and the ruled. Alongside cooperation in organizing matches, occasionally there were fights between football players from both sides, and Jews complained bitterly of discrimination against them by British referees. Uh, (laughs) Wow, Jewish people whining. The incident on the sports pitches reached a climax after the publication of the White Book by the British government, which limited the rights of the Jews in Palestine concerning immigration and settlement because of the rise of the Holocaust or the beginning of the Holocaust. This document, which was published in October 1930, aroused animosity on the part of the Jewish spectators against the English teams and even led to conflicts between Jewish and Arab fans. As a result, the third high commissioner, John Chancellor, what a fucking name, ordered the suspension of matches between Hebrew teams and British military and police teams. 
Um, the Second World War brought a reduction in the Yishuv's international sporting ties, although these continued on two main fronts, meetings with foreign soldiers who were stationed in the Middle East and with sportsmen of the neighboring Arab countries. The period between the end of the war and the establishment of the State of Israel was typified, which were also perceived as an opportunity for pol political gain. Although at the same time, because of the struggle about the future of Palestine, meetings with neighboring countries were terminated. Basically, tensions were just becoming too high as the country was trying to... It's funny how they just got a skirt around that. Like, the country was trying to form itself, and uh, we just had to stop playing sports against everybody that was around us, you know? Yeah, 100%. Like, you know, there's this, there's this thing where, like, like, no country in the Middle East, particularly Lebanon and Israel, Lebanon, Israel, and Egypt have done themselves any favors since... Uh, who was the name of the... Um, oh, fuck. Who was the name of the guy who did the Pan-Arab... Uh, Idea. Oh, uh, fuck. Nasser? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Especially, like, you know, post-Nasser and stuff like that. No one has ever done themselves any favors in this, but, like, in particular, uh, Lebanon, Egypt's treatment of Palestinian refugees and Israel's treatment of Palestinians has just been fucking awful. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, these three mm -hmm. countries form a trifecta of, of absolute shit, but, like, you know, only one, I, you know, in my opinion, has a particularly settler colonial relationship with the land it's on because like mm -hmm. we we often forget like jewish people have lived in israel for a very long time you know who hasn't millions of people who you know shuffled in there post a uh, british mandate <laughs> like yeah, six hundred thousand was a number i read in, in the book they wanted to inspire that movement clearly with this propaganda i want to read this just one last section from the book because i love the beginning of the sentence saying that like aside okay basically apart this is the, how it reads apart from the propaganda value of the sports uh, of the sportsmen of the land of israel's contact with the jews of the diaspora and games with foreign teams watched by a jewish audience these contacts were valuable in their own right and took place as brotherly meetings so more propaganda. Um, in every country that sportsmen of the every country that the sportsmen of the Yeshu visited, meetings with members of the local Jewish community and visits to the institutions, such as branches of the Zionist organizations, social clubs, and synagogues, became an accepted and common procedure. In Israel, basically became like a fucking mission. The Jewish youth of the land of Israel were seen as the young people of the diaspora were seen by the young people of the diaspora as a conduit through which they could realize their fierce longing for Zion, the jewel in the crown of sports activity, whose aim was to bring the diaspora Jews closer to those of the Yishuv. This was the project of the Maccabees that was designed to be the permanent world of Jewish sports festival in the land of Israel. During the period of the mandate, there were the two Maccabees in Tel Aviv in 1932 and in 1935. Hundreds of Jewish sportsmen from many countries participated, and they were watched by thousands of tourists who used the event to settle in Palestine. They did this by evading the strict immigration laws of the British government. So that 600,000 number that Abdul mentioned, like basically half of it was done by just going to watch these games in Israel. It's like <laughs> it made, the Maccabean games actually were very important for that immigration. They also invited, like, I think British, they also invited, like, a bunch of international agents to come and, and watch the games to, like, yep. talk about how Israel was a country and, like, used it to, like, sell propaganda, right? We are the only civilized force in the Middle East or whatever mm -hmm. uh, was the thing they, they did at these games and also at the Western Asiatic games, which, by the way, I find it funny that Syria and uh, Israel were the two major countries involved in the creation of those games. Right. Because they it's, both uh... nationhood. 
Yeah, and um, those guys are in great. They have great, re- a great relationship right now. Both of those countries, from what I understand, no issues at all. Nothing going on in the Galan between both of them. <laughs> Everything is fine. Um, so like the Maccabea games, we've mentioned them a few times. Like why they were important to Israel's formation, but there's a little bit more to it that we've sort of missed in discussing Yekutieli. Um, if one also doesn't know the etymology of the word for some reason, the Maccabees were the Jewish warriors who took back the Temple of Jerusalem during the story of Hanukkah, which is just about to end. I'm sure my family would love to know I'm recording this episode uh, <laughs> at this time. And uh, also, I don't know if you remember this, but right before Mel Gibson was going to get canceled for, you know, uh, saying, uh, calling that cop sugar tits, among other uh, epitaphs that he used, he actually was developing an action movie based on the Hanukkah story. How cool is that? That's that... fucking insane, actually. <laughs> Holy shit, I did not know He was know planning that. the most the most violent Jewish action movie ever made, basically, was his plan. The idea for these games, for the Maccabea games, was actually inspired by the fact that at the end of the, ni- the 19th century, Jews in Europe weren't allowed to take part in official athletic competition and were forbidden membership in sports associations. This is, this is the positive of the Maccabeas, in a way. The vision for the Maccabeas started with Yosef Kutieli, a Russian Jew that immigrated to Palestine in 1909, very important, with his family. After being a part of the Turkish army in World War I, he actually returned to mandatory Palestine in 1928. Yekutieli pre- re- presented his Jewish Olympics proposal to Manechem Usishkin, the chairman of the executive committee of the Jewish National Fund at the time. The Maccabea could not take place without the approval of the British-Palestinian High Commissioner. So in the fall of 1931, Great Britain appointed Sir Arthur Grenfell to, as the new High Commissioner of Palestine, he, Arthur showed great admiration to Zionist Palestine as well as the Jewish sports movement in general, so he approved the Maccabee Games on the condition that it also hosted Arabs and official British Mandate athletes in addition to Jewish sportsmen. The conditions were agreed on, and the Maccabees were the Maccabee Games was scheduled for March 1932. The games are regarded as a great success in Jewish history writing, as I learned. Uh, prior to World War II, there was an attempt to organize actually a winter Maccabea uh, due to the relatively warm temperatures in Palestine at the time. <laughs> the first winter Maccabea was actually held, held in Zakopane, Poland in 1933. The games were actually met with great opposition by non-Jewish Polish population. The Gazeta Warsaw newspaper encouraged Polish youth to intervene during the games and to prevent the, quote, Jewification of Polish sports venues. I love that. That's that's a lo- a loaded term right there. The Jewification. I mean, what? So like, we're gonna. They were basically worried that like people were gonna come and you know shed their eczema all over their fucking courts. I get it. I understand. <laughs> the uh, like limits on immigration were after 1917. Yes. I'll make sure. So this was after. So they walked back the Balfour Declaration like a little yep. bit. Okay. Just just for the intention of. Uh, of doing these satellite Maccabea games in different countries, because as we mentioned, they would use them as these missions to go to Zionist organization, for instance, in this city in Poland, to engage in the youth in Zionist propaganda. Cool. And for those who uh, don't know, the the Balfour Declaration was the British Declaration of 1917 that said, like, uh, you know, every I'm sure every Israeli learns this in school. It was when British declared a national home for the Jewish people in Palestine, right? And like mm-hmm. that definitely informed the Ottoman like the the excision of the Ottomans. It was a political decision more than anything to sort of remove Ottoman dominion over the Mediterranean. Um, And as we mentioned also in the last episode, um, this this half, by the way, is almost done. Um, Yeah, as we mentioned in the last episode, Israel was actually formally invited to participate in the 1936 Olympics in Berlin. It 
reportedly declined the invitation to attain the games in Nazi Germany. I wonder why. Instead, Yakutieli decided to proceed with the second Maccabea Games, which were held in 1935, despite official opposition by the British mandatory government of the time. The second games were held only three years. At, in, sorry. The second games were held after only three years instead of four, as was customary in the Olympics. They decided on three years in order to make it to not make it look like they were imitating the Olympics. Additionally, the Maccabea served another important goal. During the first Maccabea, a large portion of athletes stayed in Israel. So it wasn't only spectators, but the actual athletes that were bypassing the British white paper we mentioned earlier. Earlier, Their organizers were hoping the second Maccabea would function as a way to allow more athletes to make Aliyah, which translates basically to religious immigration to the Jewish state. The third Maccabea was originally scheduled to be held in the spring of 1938. However, due to British concerns that the game would once again create large-scale illegal immigration, especially in the light of the spread of Nazism in Germany and Europe, they canceled the games indefinitely. Following the outbreak of the World War II and later on in 1947-1949 Palestine War, the games were postponed even further. It wasn't until 1950 that the third games took place in the officially newly formed land of Israel, making it the actual first official sports event to take place in the country. Because at, before that, it was just in fucking limbo. Many and of famous Jewish... That was Jewish right before Helsinki, where they were at the Olympics for the very first time, right? Exactly. And for that reason, many famous Jewish European athletes were just absent from these 1950 Maccabea games because they were fucking dead from the Holocaust. Um, before the third games in 1948, Israel actually requested, as we mentioned in the previous episode, uh, to participate in the 1948 Olympics, but was denied because the newly formed country was yet to be recognized by the IOC, something very important. Another reason it couldn't truly attend is perhaps the fact that the Jewish state was currently in the midst of what had become to known as the 1947-1949 Palestinian War, or the War of Independence, as it's known in Israel. You can read up on this more, war more if you aren't aware of it, but in short, it led to the displacement of 700,000 Palestinian Arabs who are currently displaced in Arab countries, captured in, in captured territories of Palestine to this day. Also, as we just mentioned, led to the immigration of 700,000 Jews from Europe and other Arab lands, with about a third of them having being expelled from where they actually came from and the other two-thirds just wanting to come see the Maccabea games. Um, <laughs> and like, also keep in mind, like the Palestinians who were displaced have just been like second classes into whatever country they were displaced to. Like, you know, the, the West Beirut massacres in the eighties and like untold number of people dying in like extreme poverty conditions that persist to this day. Like there is no path for these people to return back to the country they were displaced to it, despite the fact that by the way they outnumbered they outnumbered like jews in uh israel like almost almost like six or seven to one like it was enormous uh whereas like the the seeds of all of this including the oh fuck i forget which lebanese government the the sort of proto-fascist lebanese mm -hmm. government that carried out the Sabra and Shatila massacres were very much inspired by uh, both like the Nazi um, sort of uh, control of power, but also by the emerging Israeli uh, state and the politics of the emerging Israeli state, not necessarily oppositionally to it, but they saw that as a model for how to do things. And as I mean, Abdul mentioned in the last episode, like IOC recognition is like 
it feels like almost 50% of a nation building project, you know, it, it, it very much establishes you on a, in a, in an internet, in the international arena, not only of sports, but politically. And we're going to see how that affects Israel uh, after Munich. But the Olympic committee of Israel was formally organized in 1951, as we mentioned with both Maccabi and the opposing Hapoel, which was another less prominent Israeli sports organization uh, as its leading bodies. They had to unify just to make this even fucking work. Um, uh, OCI, the Olympic Committee of Israel, achieved recognition by the International Olympics Committee in early 1952, just in time for Israel's Olympic debut at the 1952 Summer Olympics in Holinsky. Uh, the IOC decision to accept Israel only became a reality after extensive diplomatic negotiation, which illustrates the IOC's international maneuvers and calculations that they have to go through just to recognize countries. Israel seemingly understood the complexity of the recognition problem and actually sent diplomats to the uh, IOC to try and resolve this as quickly as possible. Um, so that just shows how important this was for nation building um, for in newly formed Israel. It's um, also one of the reasons, by the way, that Palestine and Taiwan have gone out of their way to like get themselves represented at the Olympics because like yes. Taiwan, especially uh, and Palestine will both like, they're like, we will legitimize, yeah. uh, legitimize ourselves as a country. If we can get Olympic recognition, um, and like you know, for all the issues the Olympic has, uh, the Olympics have, it is fundamental to a project of nation building. Like that is the goal of the Olympics, has always been. Um, and it's not international cooperation. It's like uh, a multi. It's like a way for people to sell themselves as countries, oh, yeah. and also a way, by the way, for the security states to for security companies to sell. A surveillance technology we can get to that in another point oh i, I would love that but and yeah we're yeah. gonna see this actually the way this played out for the 60s in terms of geopolitics um you know because after recognition for israel problems did not stop uh in 1962 uh, jakarta indonesia was actually hosting the asian olympic games which israel was still a part of but uh, it refused to issue visas to athletes from both Israel and Taiwan at the time. For this, the IOC oh, wow. actually, yeah, for this, the IOC actually had to suspend the Indonesian Olympic Committee for several years. Instead, the Indonesian government, led by President Sukarno, put together the Emerging Forces Game in 1963, which featured, let's see, Cambodia, China, North Korea, Iraq, North Vietnam, Pakistan, the United Arab Republic, and the Soviet Union. Gee, I wonder. How Israel and its allies' relationship is like with these countries right right now? What do you think? Uh... <laughs> Not good. I mean, like, yeah, that's a real that's a real like George Bush axis of evil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And by the way, like the second version of these games actually happened in Cambodia, but then never a game because after that, anticip uh, participating countries would just be suspended from the Olympic Games. So the Olympics quickly fucking severed this uh, emerging forces games very quickly. Um, just to jump ahead again, before we get to post-Munich, though, the book I've quoted from calls the 1950s and 1960s of sport in Israel, quote, the years of the political model. Uh, the author explains that, like, every single sports institution in Israel at the time was controlled by, like, sports federations that had direct support from political organizations in Israel. There was no such thing as a sports organization that did not have political ties, like early newspapers could not, when before advertising, could not survive without political ties. Um, each sport club was dependent financially on these connections because sport in Israel at the time was mostly amateur and used as specifically a political tool to continue showcasing Israel in international competition since its inception as a country. So because sport was so deeply deeply uh, tied to the political atmosphere in the early days of Israel, it's like no surprise to see how sports 
continues to be really important throughout its history. Um, I'm realizing right now how perfect the jump-off point has been since your Yakutieli uh, YMCA uh, episode. To the Maccabee show... soldier, man. Exactly. Like it, it's just it, it. We we're seeing here by this point that sports is a fucking propaganda vehicle for Israel, and is really. Um, no other way to to look at it, and uh, it doesn't really seem to help Israel as we're going to see post Munich. Yeah, like, and again, like I I reassert the the role of sports in nation building, but also like this idea of sports as almost a military project, right? Like, you know, sports historically have been used to ensure that population stays healthy. It's like a compliant workforce and a productive workforce, but also like there's a reason, like you know. In the U.S., like, the big games between, like, different uh, sections of the U.S. military or in Israel, right? Like, I'm sure that sports are a huge part of your curriculum growing up. I'm, you might be able to, you know, exp- yeah. like, let me know if that's true, right? I but mean, like, I, yeah. so- soccer soccer was used as a really important um like community building relationship building vehicle when I was growing up. And like what is sport? I mean, I was part of we, we have organizations very similar to the YMCA and even Boy Scouts when you uh, who incorporate all these aspects and you know continue this like idea that like you're a fucking that you can't just be playing soccer in sport you can't just be playing soccer in Israel you have to be a Maccabee warrior you have to be reclaiming <laughs> the temple of Jerusalem away from the fucking Romans whenever you're kicking a soccer ball there it's always tied politically in some way and every boy scout type organization that I was a part of had all this like biblical insignia on it of some kind like Jewish uh, visualization is super important when it comes to branding for these federations. And it continued to be, uh, just for context for people, I grew up in Israel from, I was born there in 1990 and stayed there until 2003. So very recent and very modern. Yeah. And like, I, you know, before we go to break, I think it's important to recognize like sports are ultimately like an articulation of the best humans can be right They're They're a articulation of the the capacity for human achievement and like why do we engage with sports because like these are olympian gods doing like superhuman (laughs) feats right like if you're Mm -hmm. big enough to be in any major like if to be a professional athlete you are in the top 0.01 percentile of of physical fitness and like human like like you know the the ideal of what like a human body can be and what can achieve right and that's like a really significant political political weapon right both for good and bad like muhammad ali being a good example of it for good or like you know uh, john carlos and stuff like that but also like you know the the berlin games legitimizing nazi germany in the eyes of the world right that was such a huge thing for them or as we're talking about here the idea of like a colonial project being legitimized through these like maccabee games and as we go to break Go watch Munich by Steven Spielberg. Go watch the documentary that Abdul mentioned earlier. Get familiar because we're gonna you're gonna see how the Olympics were used to make a quite a big statement for the Palestinians' plight. And now we go to break. These days, we are completely bombarded with video content, whether it's a series, movies, or documentaries about, I don't know, Carol Baskin and the Tiger King. That's the best documentary there is, right guys? Screenworthy tries to cut through all this noise and talk about what it all means from a cultural standpoint and how it affects the future of filmmaking. 
hosts Kyle Badanis and the smart alecky Mind Refinery creative team talk to content creators and filmmakers about the state of the industry while diving deep into noteworthy projects that arrive on your screen. Screenworthy drops every other Tuesday on the Mind Refinery podcast channel, wherever you get your podcasts. So, I hope you just enjoyed uh, that three-hour movie by Steven Spielberg. Um, <laughs> I hope you enjoyed Eric Bana's fake Israeli accent. Um, Is it good, it, though? It's I, I, I've watched it four times since it came out. So like this is like a 15 year span. I was about 15 years old when it came out and I've liked it throughout my trying to, uh, you know, posit myself as like a film nerd in high school amongst like, like, you know, basic people phase. I was able to like it when I went to film school and got even more pretentious phase. I liked it in my post film school where I was sort of being anti artsy and going into a different industry. Like I've liked it throughout different uh, times of my life. So, um, I'll tell you it's good, and then you're going to find out the next episode that Abdul saw it and that I missed every part of the Israeli propaganda that it truly is. But why I think it's good is because it was panned by Israel and a lot of Jewish writers as being too neutral and being too positive. For I Arabs. met Eric Bana's accent also. Is that good? It, it, it sounds like this. It sounds a little bit like Sasha Baron Cohen doing the Israeli accent <laughs> in Who's America. When he's doing, you know, Sasha Baron Cohen is pretending to be a Mos- uh, an IDF soldier. And uh, basically, like, I, I don't, I think it was a good accent, but at the same time, I feel like Americans are so enamored by Israeli accents because they love Israelis so much because they represent this, like, weird masculine part of their nationalism as well so that it doesn't matter to them whether the accent is real or not they just hear that tinge of it and they see that big fucking israeli face and it it seems real so that being said i, I don't know what they thought of eric banna sorry that was a weird <laughs> little rant that's no, okay that's perfectly fine um so yeah we're, we're basically we're, we're skipping over munich because there's just too much literature about it it's really and you just know as, about it there's nothing you, we can say about munich that you don't all right, that you wouldn't be able to find out, like, right? And it's it's the pre-Munich and the post-Munich play of these uh, different act. The, the way these actors play out on the geopolitical arena that is the most important as to what happened. Because at the end of the day, you're going to look at the Munich attack as one thing. For me, you're either going to see it neutrally because you're not Israeli or Arabic. You're going to see it as this massive tragedy if you are an Israeli or Zionist, or you're going to see it as this heroic event and this very important aspect of liberating uh palestinians if you are pro-palestinian potentially maybe i don't know so we're not going to go into it too much but um we we are going to focus on the sports act aspect of this we do have to mention how sort of normal and status quo sports continues to be in israel after all this and this is all happening while operation wrath of god is happening which um as we mentioned, is covered pretty well in the Steven Spielberg movie. But in short, Israeli Prime Minister Golda Meir and the Israeli Defense Committee secretly authorized the Mossad Mossad to track down and kill those allegedly responsible for the Munich massacre. The Israeli operations continued for more than 20 years, which uh, various people unrelated to the Munich attacks were accidentally being killed in the process of enacting this vengeance. While Israeli officials have stated Operation Wrath of God was intended to exact vengeance for the families of athletes killed in Munich, quote, few relatives actually wanted such a violent reckoning with the Palestinians. Families of the Munich, uh, the people who died in Munich, were actually more desperate to know the truth of how security was breached so easily during the games. And in 2004, they actually received 3 million euros in a settlement from the German government. Interestingly enough, I don't know if you knew that. I did not um, actually. That's wild. Yeah. So back to sports, though. Let's stick. Let's stick with sports. Uh, that's all we have. Uh, you think? Yeah. Just Israel- shut up and dribble. 
Exactly. You think Israel would double down on sports as a Zionist as a Zionist political vehicle, but it actually seemed to go the opposite way, uh, with its political operations operations clearly going to shadow operations like the Mossad and military actions that we are well documented. With sports being the sort of status quo formulating. Uh, vehicle. So between 1954 and 1974, Israel did take part in the Asian Games, but the events of the Olympics and the Arab-Israeli conflict of the time led to political pressure being exerted by Arab countries to reorganize the, Olympo- the Olympic Council of Asia in 1981 to actually officially exclude Israel. This is why uh, Israel had to rethink how it used sports as a nationalist tool. So back to the book that I was quoting uh, from the first part, sport in the 1970s and 1980s underwent a transitional period. A gradual transformation from political model to to commercial model began. But this period was also characterized by by the intensity of sports activity within the country and in international activity. Football, or as we know it, soccer, remained the most popular sport in Israel. The league and cup games became an integral part of the cultural life of many Israelis at the time. The national team reached the World Cup games in Mexico in 1970, after Munich, actually. In addition, the national football team participated in the 1976 Olympic Games in Montreal. In basketball, the Maccabi Tel Aviv club became one of the leading clubs in Europe, winning the the European Cup in 1977. The Israeli national basketball team also participated in the European Cup tournaments, so Israel became a regular participant in the Olympic Games and took part in other international competitions and sports, such as tennis, judo, and sailing. Sports becomes Sport became part of the international relations of the state of Israel and, an, as I'm saying, a normalizing of those relationships. So basically nothing changed except for the outward propaganda. The seeds of transformation were sown during this period. Football players piled their professional abilities in clubs outside of Israel, actually. Football club managers in Israel started pay- paying their favorite players, and soon all of the club's players, non-Israelis, began playing in the basketball league at the time. At first, Jewish players from the USA, who, because of uh, Israel's law in return, became citizens of the immigration. Then in 1971, non-Jewish players were allowed to join the basketball clubs, both men's and women's. The commercial model of sport was apparently an inevitable development. This is why, since then, the present situation of sport in Israel could be described as an accelerating process of a commodification. The turning point began with the breakdown of the political organizations that were supporting these uh, sports federations. Consequently, they could not support their sports federations any longer financially. Sports clubs of various kinds had to seek out independent financial support. So that's why they started exporting or importing immigrants to come and play for them. Certain sports such as soccer, because of their specific popularity, were more fortunate than others. Certain sports such as soccer, because of their specific popularity, were more fortunate than others. Other, less popular sports had had to be satisfied within limited public funds, the Ministry of Culture and the Council of Sports. A few distinguished athletes received received support from individuals or corporations, while some sports barely kept going. Basically, like soccer goes on to survive in Israel as some kind of commercial sport. But other than that, all sports effort in Israel are focused on Olympic uh, representation just to keep Israel in the minds of like the international political zeitgeist as like this normal country that just takes part in normal things is what i'm trying to say do they ever send people to like winter games too yeah like back to the olympics um they did send uh delegations to all the summer olympics since they were recognized except for moscow in 1980 uh, in which israel supported the usa in a boycott over the soviet invasion of afghanistan but 
Israel actually made its debut in the Winter Olympics in 1994 and became a regular participant then. Uh, it actually, like, I mean, what, some of my fond memories of Israel is going to the Golan, where you very quickly transition into this winter wonderland, and they had skating arenas up there. The only skating, actually the one and only skating arena that exists in Israel, interestingly enough. Oh, well, that must be like one of the only ones in the Middle East, like Dubai and and Golan must be the only two. Yeah. Yeah. Dubai, there's probably one that's like suspended in the air and you can see like through the fucking ice, the the, like 10 stories down. It's probably beautiful. Largest artificial ski hill in the world, I think, is Dubai. There you go. Um, And actually in early 1990 is... So in the early 1990s, Israel was actually admitted into the European sports organization after this weird political middle ground that it had to be in. And it officially became a member, a full member of European Olympics committees in 1994 to ease those tensions with the Arab Asian countries that had absolutely nothing. They wanted nothing to do. So yeah, Israel remains uh, associated with these European unions for like good but selfish reasons, like as conflicts with other nations continue even after they uh, make sure to not be part of these uh, West uh, Asian Arab committees in any way. Like people do not leave them alone for good reason, because Israel continues to uh, perpetuate uh, apartheid in its country. And countries like Iran want to show solidarities with Palestinians. That's like the other interesting part is like um, the IOC and other like international organizations juggling its relationship with Israel with like, you know, a very popular conception outside of the U.S. and Great Britain, Canada, and the world stage that like Israel is not doing very good work and uh, is like perpetuating like an ongoing genocide and um, in, uh, you know, in Gaza and in Palestine and stuff like that. Like there is, there is this like very interesting push and pull that I'm sure is like perpetuated also by like the amount of just the fucking pure amount of money that there is to be made there, right? Like it is a very well off country if you're. You know, I guess like a what you would call like a typical, you know, sort of uh, person of like Jewish ethnicity. Right. Obviously very different for black Jews and other other people. But yeah. Yeah. they, they And they've embraced that model and they've had to embrace that model, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, because all of these political organizations that used to fund sports in Israel suddenly stopped when they couldn't afford it anymore. And sports became slightly less of an important vehicle for nationalism. And then Israel fucking opens its doors and in a weird way mirrors sort of where it's become now in terms of like tech, in terms of it's like, you know, startup sort of like startup incubation status that it has. Like Israel is Israel is fucking open for business like Ontario is. Thank you, Doug Ford. Um, this is where I want to talk about recent Olympic uh, incidents with Israel. This is also where I'm going to explain why judo holds this weird special place in Israelis' hearts. I don't know if you know this. It's partially because judo is is basically the one sport we did okay in, which is why we love it. Um, Israel won its first ever Olympic medal in its 10th Olympic appearance in 1992. This is when, in judo, Yael Arad... Arad won a silver medal. She was followed a day later by another judoka, Oren Smedia, who won bronze. Israel has actually won the most amount of medals by of any sport in judo, with sailing as a close second, which actually includes only one gold medal, which was won in 2004 by Gal Friedman. So, Does judo have anything to do with Krav Maga? It's, okay. just, it's just Japanese. 
like it's just the, the Japanese art of fucking fighting and yeah <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ old Jews are fucking uwu kids who want to just fucking reappropriate listen we're all anime kids I love it it makes it makes sense of my uh tendencies uh judo was the stage for a couple of notable conflicts with people who also don't like Israel so this has uh painted our love of judo a little badly um so this is uh from uh, 2004, an Iranian, an Iranian judoka named Aresh uh, Mirsameli. I'm going to call him Aresh. I'm sorry to all my <laughs> Arab brothers. Uh, he did not compete in a match against Israeli uh, judoka Ahud Vax during the 2004 Summer Olympics due to the government of Iran trying to take steps to avoid any competition between its athletes and those from Israel. So uh, Arish was officially disqualified for being overweight. However, he was awarded by the Iranian government $125,000 U.S. uh, in prize money, um, which is the amount that they pay any Iranian who wins gold medal in the Olympics. The International Judo Federation conducted an investigation to see if uh, Arish intentionally came in overweight in order to miss the bout for political reasons. He was officially cleared of intentionally avoiding the bout, but his receipt of the prize money has raised suspicion, probably specifically in Israel. Pretty fucking, that's a pretty fucking king move, if you ask me. Yeah, it's like good propaganda for Israel, but like good for him, you know what I mean? Like, like genuinely you can't hate on that it is a power move to just like take the prize money take the gold medal and you get to eat uh, whatever yeah. stewed goat you want <laughs> yeah but he the disrespect of like signing up for this match and then just showing your opponent complete and utter fucking hatred by not training at all and just sitting at home and eating all your mom's fucking falafel it's great and in a recent actually a more recent incident saudi arabian judoka jod fami forfeited her match in the 2016 summer olympics in order to avoid competing against gilly cohen later in the 2016 summer olympics israeli or sasson defeated egyptian judoka islam islam el shahabi in the first round after the match ended sasson actually tried to shake his opponent's hand but el shahabi refused um, also pretty badass. In an even more recent incident, prior to the 2016 opening ceremony, the Lebanese delegation was assigned to ride on the same bus as the Israeli delegation. The head of the Lebanese Who team... Who did that? Who? Yeah. Who decided that, that would be a good fucking idea? Like, what moron in, uh, in like, the organizing committee was like... Like, is this the thing where you, like, lock two people in a room so they could sort yeah. out their differences? Yeah, they just thought if they could do seven minutes in heaven between the Israelis and Palestinians, they would just fucking figure this all out. Um, the head of the Le- Lebanese team, Salim al-Hajj, admitted that he demanded that the door, the bus door be actually closed on the Israeli team when they approached the bus. And that the Lebanese demanded that the Israeli athletes do not even board the bus. Udi Gao, an Israeli Olympic sailor, said his team ultimately ultimately decided to avoid the travel travel and get on a separate bus to avoid an international and physical incident, quote unquote. So yeah, the the Israeli delegation got to come out seeming very very reasonable in the situation, even though who the fuck put these two on the same <laughs> bus in 2016? This is so idiotic. This is like I love it because you know, like uh, dude. Either that person definitely got fired or they like got a promotion for like yeah, doing exactly. something so ballsy, right? There's no in-between on that. You don't just like sweep those under the rug. We're si- we're going through it's good that we got went through two episodes to explain this because after all the information that we just read to you, which is widely available on the internet, how the fuck would you put these two fucking groups on the same bus? Like it's it's it was Heinrichs, it was Waldo Heinrichs yeah. Jr. <laughs> <laughs> son. I'm gonna try and fulfill my fucking father's wishes. I love. 
Um, but yeah, since 2006, six, Iran has actually boycotted any sporting competition with Israel over 30 times, while countries like Lebanon, Indonesia, Kuwait, Algeria, and Saudi Arabia have also boycotted throughout this time period. So it's funny it mass- with Saudi Arabia. Sorry, it sorry no. to cut you off. It's funny with Saudi Arabia because like Saudi Arabia now actually has a very deep relationship with the Israeli security yeah. state because they found a a common enemy in Iran, right? Like, um, mm. so like Saudi Arabia to satisfy, satisfy it's like Wahhabi cleric and it's cleric class has to like put up this, like, um, it has to put up this front of being like anti-Israeli when that hasn't existed since the eighties. Like they've actually mm. been very good friends behind the scenes. Uh, and like, it's so nominal with Saudi to be like, yeah, we're, we hate the Jews. We're going to boycott Israel. And it's like, no, no, their, their intelligence operations are actually working very closely together and have basically since the, since the end of the, um, actually wouldn't be since the seventies. It would be since the end of the, uh, since the end of the Afghanistan war. I think if, uh, I think if Trump won a second term, we would see the Maccabea games in Saudi Arabia, potentially when we just erode, it's like, yeah, yeah. When fucking, when Jared Kushner is the fucking Maccabea games, like high commissioner or whatever. And like, they build these like high tech, the Israeli fucking Israeli construction fucking, uh, companies are headed to Saudi Arabia to build, uh, new soccer stadiums. I want to see that vision of fucking Trumpistania or whatever. Uh, I wonder if the Bin Laden group has ever done any work in Israel. That is interesting. Um, but yeah, I yeah. mean, like, uh, the, look as you look that up. I just yeah, as we're gonna as we've seen, the Munich massacre just made everybody hella passive aggressive at the fucking Olympic Games. Like, I don't think things will ever gonna get better. Um, and like as long and is and as I mentioned earlier, Israel is trying to keep a status quo in these Olympic Games. Like, they ignore these boycotts for the most part, and they present themselves as neutral. Democrat, Democrats, but Democrats. I, I'm going to say it Democrats. Like that. Yeah, a bunch of fucking Democrats. Are they winning in this public relations battle? Seemingly not. They are probably winning internally in Israel, but on from an exterior point of view and from after everything we've read, no, it's everybody sees how fucking awkward this is and, and weird it is. Apparently in 1998, there was some sort of agreement between the Bin Laden group and Israel that never materialized in actuality <laughs> for obvious reasons. That would have been so lit. I have this excerpt from a book called The Historical Dictionary of the Olympic Movement, and they have this little section about Palestine and how it has represented itself in the Olympics. So we did talk about that controversial 1930s appearance. But, uh, quote, Palestine currently has no exact geographic boundaries, but its NOC was given provisional recognition by the IOC at its annual meeting in Monte Carlo in September 1993. This occurred shortly after the historic agreement signed between the Palestine, Palestine Liberation Organization and the State of Israel in the same month. Palestine first competed at the Olympic Games in 1996 when it was represented by one single athlete who finished last in the in the heat of the 10,000 meter race. At the subsequent Olympics, Palestine was also represented by swimmers and track and field athletes. None of its participants have reached the final stage of the competition. So, we get to in a cute way recognize Palestine at the Olympics. I think Israel has won that that battle from what I'm understanding. Yeah, and like I I saw a documentary on YouTube when I was like Googling around for research for the last episode, which was like how the Olympic swimmer for Palestine trains. And it was like in a, in a busted fucking, uh, you know, busted fucking, um, gymnasium, like swimming pool. And like in the, uh, in the, 
is it the Black Sea? I'm trying to remember what the uh, what the uh, sea the Red the Red Sea the Red Sea yeah and the Red yeah. Sea and it's just like you know if you compare that to the conditions that Israeli athletes have to like train in it's like night and day. Yeah, they fucking get to train in the Iron Dome, basically. <laughs> and uh, it's also like, it's also, you know, going back to an earlier point, it is interesting that the only place Israel seems to support sports uh, is like still at the Olympics, right? Like they understand on a purely propaganda level how important, like it's not about the sports, it's about maintaining your status as a as a nation on the world's biggest stage of sport. And with that, like that pretty much ends our first season. Um, if you liked it, look forward to season two and, uh, you know, please let us know over Twitter, like what you thought of the season, anything we could do to improve, you know, you can find us obviously at, at off court pod, me at socialist Raptor. You can find me at E Y T A A A A A A N. That's six A's. Um, please, you know, feel free to correct us, send us criticism of any kind too. We only want to get better. Um, this was a new kind of research project for me as well. I've never done this much research other than for school. We we want not only want to get better, but we want to improve on um discussing the next ideas uh, that we have. We might even include more interviews, but we, we can discuss this in episode zero. This was yeah, this is crazy, Abdul. Yeah, we had a lot of fun doing this, and uh, we hope you had a lot of fun listening to it. But we'll see you in, uh, I think, four months. Probably less, because we'll have started working on this by the time this episode airs. But yeah, like uh, we're looking forward to continuing to build this little podcast. Yeah. And as you let these, uh, as you let sports blind you from the horrors of uh, the next mutations of the coronavirus, use this podcast <laughs> to enlighten your vision to open your eyes and to quote unquote stay woke as we live in this terrible terrible universe open your third eye which is a terrible thing to say an episode about jews um we gotta do yeah. a Kyrie irving episode by the way maybe speaking oh, of opening yeah. your third eye honestly that might be a good starter um but yeah, yeah like I, I completely agree but yeah no thank you so much everyone we will see you in a couple of months take it easy